All right, so I think we have a really interesting God. Uh, you're probably like, yeah, you're a pastor. That makes sense. But I think we have a really interesting God. Our, our God, he, he, he likes to show up by very human means at times. Now, of course, God shows up in very miraculous ways a lot of times, too. We talk about those times all the time as we go through the Bible. But what I've noticed is that God shows up in everyday life all the time. And, and, and so very often when God is showing up in everyday life, he's using these everyday things that are parts of all of our lives to, to do something, to speak something, to move in something. We, we, sometimes we see God move in our relationships and our friendships. Sometimes we see uh, God put us in a series of situations in order to grow us or help us to understand who he is more and trust him more. Sometimes, I think even for me, I feel like God puts movies or shows or different sorts of art into my life to help me understand powerful truths about who he is. I think that if we listen closely to our lives and to the Spirit, we'll see that God very often shows up in everyday, in the everyday stuff of life. And so we're in this series called We Want a King, and in this series, as we've watched the lives so far of the first two kings of Israel, what we've noticed is this is what God does very often. He shows up in the everyday stuff of life. He shows up in the life of a lazy priest and communicates to his people. He shows up in the song of a mother who desperately wanted a child. He, he shows up even to me in very unexpected places, places I would never expect God to move, but unfortunately are everyday things in things like battles and war and in the army of Israel and these different things. God has a tendency to show up in the everyday stuff of life. And that's what we're going to see today. And so here's what we're going to see today as we go through the passage, or the passages, chapters, really, that we're in. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapters 18 through 22. And the first part of the sermon, even maybe the vast majority of the sermon, it's just going to be a story time together. We're just going to let God's word pour over us. I don't think we could ever get enough just letting the stories of the Bible pour over us. Because when we know the stories of the Bible well, we'll know the one grand story of the Bible really well. Okay, so we're going to spend some time just going through chapters uh, 18 through 22 of 1 Samuel that way. I'm going to summarize the vast majority of it, but we'll read different sections that I feel are good for us to read for time's sake. And then what we're going to do is we're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about how God moves in the everyday stuff of life that we see, especially in these chapters. We're going to see that God moves in friendship. We're going to see that God moves in laments. And we're going to see that God moves even in us by showing us King Saul's evil. Okay? So that's where we're going today. Uh, let's get ready to hop into it. Lately, where we, where we have been at in this series, if you don't know, is Israel cries out for a king. They get this King Saul. Saul is basically indifferent to God. He's disobedient to God. So God says, I'm going to remove you, Saul. And he says, I'm going to put in a man after my own heart. And he, he begins to lift up David. And so far with David, we've seen David get anointed by Samuel the priest, thus showing that David is the next king of Israel. And then we've seen David kind of interact with Saul and be someone who soothes Saul through the power of the Spirit on David's life. And then last week, we saw David. David fight Goliath, kill Goliath, this massive man, this champion, when he was not even old enough to go to war yet. 
And so that's where we're at in the story. David is slowly rising into kingship, and Saul is slowly being pulled away from his kingship, okay? So uh, 1 Samuel 18, verse 1 through 5. I'm going to reread what Gretchen just read for us. So uh, follow along with me. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, and he gave it to David in his armor, and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants." So let's pause there for a little bit. So David just gets done slaying Goliath, and now him and Jonathan are finding themselves in the same circles. And if you remember our story about Jonathan a few weeks ago, it really seems that Jonathan and David have very similar hearts. They have God-saturated imaginations that could see God delivering them even in the most impossible of situations. And so it's no wonder that David and Jonathan, the son of Saul— become very good friends. They become like best friends. There's this deep love between them. It's so deep that they form a covenant together, which th- this happened a lot in the ancient world, but a covenant was a really serious thing that I wish we had more time to talk about, but they essentially make this promise, this binding friendship to one another saying, hey, I'm for you. I'm for you. May, may I be torn apart if I don't live out this friendship well. Jonathan even, I think, symbolically takes off his, his kingly robes and gives them to David. And so this friendship forms between them. Saul sees that, that David is, is this guy who's excelling in battle, and he has favor in the, in the eyes of the people. And so Saul sets David over different uh, armies and, and, and battalions and different things, and David kind of goes out, and he's finding success wherever he goes, wherever he battles, wherever he takes men. He's always finding success, and we're kind of starting to see David's rise into kingship as Saul's is drifting away. Now let's go to verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this, dis- this saying displeased him. I'm going to hop down to verse 9. And Saul eyed David from that day on. Okay, this is a shift in our story so far with David and Saul in particular. We know from a couple chapters ago that Saul began to love David because David could soothe Saul. Now we probably Saul even loved David because David was bringing glory to Israel. And so as they're coming back, apparently, from the victory with Goliath, I think it was probably, they probably went on some other battles and campaigns before they kind of came back home from that. The news had reached all the different Israelite cities about what David had done, about how David had slayed Goliath. And so the women come out singing. They've already written a song, and the song goes, Saul's killed thousands, but David's killed ten thousands. And King Saul hears this, and he goes, listen, it wasn't ten thousands. He just killed one really big guy. I've killed thousands. 
Saul starts to get jealous, and this is, this is a shift in the story. Saul is jealous, envious, angry at the glory that David is getting, and his heart towards David shifts. Not because of anything David did, not because of anything that David was. Saul just does not like the accolades that David is getting. And it says right there in verse 9, after that song, after these songs, after people started esteeming David that way, and I wonder if Saul's freaking out about some of the things Samuel had said to him in earlier chapters, saying God's going to take the throne away from you, and I wonder if he's going, well, maybe he's going to give it to this guy. Saul starts to eye David suspiciously. David not, does not become the son of his, uh, or I mean the friend of his son, the best friend of his son. He does not become this, this great guy who has a God-saturated imagination. He becomes an enemy for Saul in that moment. And then it isn't long before, before Saul does something about it. We see in verses 10 and 11. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Let's stop there. So Saul's eyeing David suspiciously. This tormenting spirit that we talked about a few weeks ago is in his life. If, you're, if that's hard for you to hear, uh, that makes sense. Uh, I would encourage you to go back, maybe listen to that sermon. Maybe they, that can help a little bit. But he brings David in because what David would do by the power of the Spirit of the Lord is he would send this tormenting spirit away. And Saul's sitting in there, and he's eyeing David, and he's emotionally distraught, and he has this spear next to him, and he, he, he's really kind of like, you see the sickness of his mind. He's like, I don't want to just hit David. I want to pin him to the wall with the spear. Like, calm down, Saul. Like, just get him. Like, you don't have to pin him to the wall. But this is what Saul begins to imagine, and that's what he does. He throws it once, misses, throws it a second time, misses, okay? I think this is probably where that saying came about. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, right? Like, David, why didn't you leave the room, okay? Like, I have a strict, if someone throws a spear at me policy, I'm out of the room, okay? (laughs) It's just a strict policy I encourage you guys to adopt yourselves. But this is what happens. So this, like... Saul's anger rises up so horribly that he attempts to kill David, who is a comfort to him, who has been nothing but good to him. And this is now another shift in the story. Saul goes from not just being angry with David, from wanting to kill David. What we are going to see through the chapters that we're in today is at least four other attempts in some way on David's life by Saul. In the rest of chapter 18, what Saul does is he kind of hatches this plan that you, you, you got to kind of read in between the line and theolo- in the lines, and theologians and academics uh, have to try to figure out what exactly Saul was doing. But what he was trying to do was give his, one of his daughters away to David in marriage, like he promised in the battle with Goliath. But he wanted to do it in a way that would put a target on David's back. Whatever Saul was doing here in giving his daughters in marriage away to David was to make it more, like, easier to kill David, either himself or for the Philistines to say, oh, David's going to be the son-in-law of, of the king? Let's kill him now while we can because of their evil rivalry between those nations at the time. And, and so... Uh, the, the first plan, David's kind of like, I don't want to marry, I don't know, I don't want to marry the first daughter, I'm not worthy type of a thing. I don't know, maybe David just didn't like her. I don't know what's going on there. 
It doesn't work out. Saul, last minute, he gives his firstborn daughter to a different guy. Then Saul finds out his next daughter, Michal, that she really loves David. And I wonder if this is maybe why David was resistant at first. And so he's like, hey, I'm going to give you Michal. And so then David seems more into the idea here. And so David says, hey, what's the bride price? Saul says something that involves 100 Philistines, some, a body part that I'm not going to say in here. You could ask your dads about it later. Um, and so David has to go to battle, kill 100 Philistines, remove something yucky, and give it to King Saul. And this whole thing was supposed to be a way to get David killed, right? Here, I'm going to make this obscene, like you have to kill 100 guys, and, and you're, there's no way you can. But David does it, and him and Saul's daughter, Michal, uh, ends up getting married, okay? Seems like a bad idea to David. He doesn't seem to have a lot of good uh, uh, foresight. But... <laughs> So David ends up marrying Michal. Uh, they get married. Um, but Saul is still, he's just wanting to kill David. And so now what he starts to do at the beginning of chapter 19 is he wants to rope Jonathan into this. He knows him and David are close. He's already kind of tried to use Michal against David in some way. And so he brings Jonathan in and he's like, hey, we got to kill this guy. We got to kill David. He's going to take over the kingship. Like you're not going to be able to be king if if he, if he sticks around, we got to kill him. And Jonathan goes like, no, we can't kill him, Dad. Like, he's a, he's a great guy. Like, he's done nothing but good for you. He's done nothing but good for Israel. Like, why would we kill him? And, and, and Saul has a moment of clarity where he goes, okay, okay, I, I, won't, I won't kill him. But then, before we get to verse 11 of chapter 19, Saul has another bad moment. David's hanging out with him, and for a third time, Saul tries to throw a spear at David. I'm just, again, David, eye the room. If you see a spear in Saul, don't, get, don't be in that room, okay? And so David takes off. He heads to his, wife, to his wife, to his house, and Saul wants to send messengers after him. And I want to read this passage in the middle of chapter 19 because... What we see in chapter 19, verses 11 through 18, is the first Ferris Bueller moment in history, okay? Now, I don't know if you've seen Ferris Bueller. It's back on Netflix. It's a perfect movie. If you want to see a perfect movie, Ferris Bueller's one of the few perfect movies out there. And what we see is that Ferris Bueller has completely plagiarized the Bible, okay? So... In verse 11, we see this story, what Saul does after he throws his spear and he sends these messengers. It says this, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, sorry, I just dropped my bookmark. David's wife told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image or a household god and laid it on the bed, and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head, and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed, and the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me, and thus let my enemy go, so that he has escaped? And Michal answered Saul, he said to me, let me go, why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naioth. Okay, so Saul sends these messengers after 
David in order to kill him. And Michal's like, listen, I know my dad. He's going to kill you. Take off. Like, I'm going to lower you down out this window. I got a plan. And she does this thing we see in Ferris Bueller. She gets a household god that kind of looks... My whole point of reading this part is just to prove that Ferris Bueller is biblical, okay? So... She gets this household god, which she's also uh, the daughter of the king of Israel and has a god. That's kind of weird. But she puts it in, and she has goat hair, and they cover it up with a blanket. And the soldiers come, and they're like, okay, we got to take David. And, and she's like, he's sleeping. You can't. And apparently, like, if someone's sleeping, it's off limits to kill them. I don't know what that scenario is. But that's the scenario. So they go back to Saul, and Saul's like, I don't care. Bring him in the bed. So it's also weird because Saul's like, yeah, no, I get it, but bring him in the bed. <laughs> <laughs> and so they go, they start to carry the bed, and I, I just imagine, like, the head falls out of the bed. <laughs> and they're like, what the? <laughs> they pull the blanket out. This isn't David at all. And Saul yells at his daughter for it. She's like, I'm not going to let you kill my husband, Dad. Like, that's, uh, that's just another personal policy that she has, you know? Like, I'm not going to let you do that. And so uh, David takes off. He goes to Samuel, who is this priest, this prophet, this judge of Israel, hoping to find safety in this other town. And Saul, he will not relent. So he sends a delegation of warriors to go get David in Nioth with Samuel once he finds out that, that, that David is there hiding with Samuel. Now, what happens is when this delegation gets close enough to get David, all of a sudden it says that they start prophesying. Now, we have no idea what they were prophesying. They're speaking some kind of holy words, and God himself has overcome them almost with a spell of goodness so that they start prophesying. So I like to imagine, you know, they're, get, they're about a mile away from David, and all of a sudden they just start singing 10,000 reasons on repeat, right? They just can't help themselves. They're just singing some Chris Tomlin. They're just getting after it. And they're just like, we can't stop, right? And so they're just, we can't, they can't get to David because of how God has overpowered them. They go back, tell Saul, they're still, I think, prophesying, singing some Maverick City to Saul, and just getting after it. And Saul goes, okay, I'm going to send a second group. Same thing happens. Send a third group. Same thing happens. And so Saul says, I'll go myself. Saul goes himself. And what do you know? Blessed be your name starts coming out of his lips. Okay, that's an early 2000s reference. Uh, and he can't stop prophesying, and you'd think that Saul would wake up, right? You are part of a nation that says God is real and works in history. He's the one God, creator of all, and he does all these kinds of miraculous things through his people, and Saul is trying to kill David, and you think that when Saul all of a sudden starts singing praises or prophesying whatever it was to, about God and to God and for God, that he would say, maybe I should stop, but he doesn't. He doesn't stop. The story keeps going. So David takes off. He gets out of Nioth, and, and, and he meets up with Jonathan again. And we'll see this in chapter 20, the first four verses. It said this, Then David fled, fled from Nioth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It's, it's not so. But David vowed again, Your father knows well that I found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I'll, I'll do for you. So jo David links back up with Jonathan. And Jonathan, I think, is trying to say, Hey, 
My, I think, yeah, my dad does want to kill you, but I think he'll tell me first. Like, I'll be able to warn you and protect you so you can still kind of do your, like, army man duties, like part of the king's court duties that you can normally do. And David's like, I don't think so, man. Like, and he, t- so he all, now David's like, I have a personal policy about him and Spears now. And so, so David says, okay. And so the rest of chapter 20, they hatch this plan. And the plan is essentially this. I'm going to hide in this field nearby. You tell your dad I went to Bethlehem to celebrate this festival that normally the whole king's court would celebrate with him. It was a new moon festival. He goes, I'm going to hide in this field. You tell him I went to go celebrate with my family in Bethlehem and just see, just see how he reacts. And they come up with this whole way to send a secret message back to one another using bows, bow, a bow and arrow and the servants. And, uh, and so Saul, Jonathan goes in. He tells his dad on day two because Saul is kind of going, okay, where's David? And Jonathan goes, hey, uh, David, he cleared it with me. He just said, hey, I'm going to go back home for this holiday. I'm going to Bethlehem. And Saul gets enraged. I think he gets enraged partially because maybe he wanted to have an opportunity to kill David. He gets so enraged that he insults Jonathan's mom, which I think it works this way. I think that would be Saul's wife, okay? Uh, And so he insults his wife, and then he tries to kill Jonathan. He throws the spear at his own son. Look what a little jealousy and envy has turned into. It's turned into a man trying to kill his own son. Well, Jonathan goes out to the archery field, and he sends the secret message to David, and David's like, I knew it, <laughs> and takes off, right? And he takes off, and he goes, uh, for, he goes to kind of all these different places. First, I think he goes to this Philistine territory. They might recognize him, so he starts acting crazy. Uh, then he uh, goes to this place with Ahimelech, who's a priest, and so we'll pick up our story in verse 22, or I mean in chapter 22, verse 6. And so, uh, Essentially, let me make sure I'm reading the right place. Sorry, guys. There's a lot of moving parts today. Not verse 6. We are going to uh, just summarize, actually, what this is. Sorry, guys. I'm trying to save us time. So basically what happens is David ends up in Nob, this city with Ahimelech. And Ahimelech is this priest, and they have this tabernacle or some kind of worship place in Nob. And it was a known worship place for Israel. And so David, as he's on the run from Saul, after he got that secret message from Jonathan, he ends up in Nob, and he's, tr- he's trying to ask for help. And so actually we are going to read this part. It's a verse. Sorry, yes, 21, 1 through 9. So let's start verse 1 of 21. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. 
And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there's none but that here. And David said, There's none like that. Give it to me. Okay, so that's where our story stops for now. And so essentially what happens is David goes to this priest, asks for help, and David kind of deceives the priest. He said, because it was known in the land that David was one of the servants of the king, and David's like, hey, I'm on a secret mission. It required haste. Can you give me some bread? We don't have any food. Can you give me a weapon? And poetically, Goliath's sword is wrapped up there. And so he gets all these things, but meanwhile, there's a key detail in the middle where there's this guy Doeg there. And Doeg is a herdsman of Saul, or Hebrews tricky. That could also be translated like kind of like secret service of Saul, like a part of his kind of like secret kind of bodyguard group, okay? So Doeg is there for some reason. He sees what's going on with David, and we know that this is going to come up in the rest of the story. So David's hiding in different places, and Doeg goes and he returns to Saul, and he says, Hey, I saw David. Now that I know that you want to kill him, I saw him. Ahimelech, the priest in Nob, he helped David. So Saul calls forth Ahimelech, and he says, hey, did you help David? And Ahimelech goes, I thought I was helping you. Like, isn't he your servant? Like, he's held, he told me he's on a mission for you. And Saul you know, curses out uh, Ahimelech, and Ahimelech goes back to home. And then Saul says to his, his little group of warriors there, some of his servants, he goes, go to Nob, kill all the priests, kill all their families. And the servants go, no, we're not going to do that, Saul. I don't know if you know this. Have you read the Bible, Saul? Like, that seems like a bad idea. So they don't do it, but Doeg, who's still in the room, says, I'll do it. I'll kill him. Give me a sword. And sure enough, Doeg goes to Nob. He kills all of the priests and all of their families. And the news gets back to David that this happened, and David is very grieved because he knows, in part, his deception played a role in this in some way, but it's really Saul's evil that ends up killing these priests and their families, and David is just really grieved. And that's where our story stops for today. It, there's a lot of moving parts in the story. There's a lot of details in the story. And I think a lot of times when we read chapters like this in the Bible, it can be really easy to kind of just go, well, this person is just writing history and things down that way. And that might be part of it. But what we have to remember is that the biblical authors, when they're writing things down and putting them as the words of scripture, they are thinking to themselves that they're not just writing history, but they are writing history theologically. They're trying to put down where they see God moving, how they see God moving, what they see God doing, how God is guiding history. And so we can even learn from chapters like this where it's not obviously stated to us what God is doing. And I think it's because God moves in the everyday stuff of life. And I think there's three different ways we can see how God moves in this story. The first thing that I think that God does, that we, that we can see, is that God moves in friendship. God moves in friendship. It's always struck me when I read this portion of Samuel how often the, the author goes back to S S Jonathan and David. And goes back and, and shows how close they are. And shows this covenant that they have. And I, I don't think the author is simply just describing what was true and what really happened. I think that's part of it. But I think what the author wants us to see is that very often God moves in friendship. 
God takes an ordinary thing, like two people being friends with one another, and he often moves in that. If you don't believe me, if you're having a hard time understanding or believing that, I would encourage you, go read the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is a book of wisdom to help us know what it means to live godly lives in a broken world. And all throughout the book of Proverbs, you are going to find these little sayings about friendship. You're going to find that there are Proverbs encouraging us to be good friends. You're, you're going to find that uh, there are Proverbs that say finding a good friend is a good thing. You're going, to be, uh, you're going to find Proverbs that call us to try to be a good or better friend. You're going to find that uh, the Proverbs talk about what the qualities of a good friend are. You're, even one proverb even talks about how families with you, basically through adversity, no matter what, kind of out of obligation, because you guys, you know, had the same mama and data. But a friend stays with you in that stuff because, simply because they love you, simply because they choose you. And I think that we're in these chapters and we see Jonathan and David's friendship. I think what we are to see is that God moves in and through friendship. He does things in friendship. With David, he gives him this friend, Jonathan, who ends up protecting him from all sorts of evil from his dad. For Jonathan, he gives him this friend, David, who helps Jonathan's eyes get open to the fact that his dad is so evil. And when Saul is after them both, their friendship seems to be what gets them through it, helps them survive it. Friendship, love, is a unique love that God often moves through. And I think that's why we have such a detailed description here in Samuel of Jonathan and David's friendship. I truly believe that God moves in friendship love. Like, I've watched God protect me through the love of my friends. I've watched God grow me through the love of my friends. In fact, in, in recent years, I've been really reflecting on one of my most key friendships. It's this guy named Ivan Zovko I grew up with. He's my best friend. And I think about if God had not put Ivan in my life, I would be much more of a mess than I am. I'm already a mess. But I'd be even more of a mess. That God used the love of this friend Ivan to do something, all kinds of things in me. To protect me, care for me. Heal me, repair me. God moves in friendship. And because God moves in friendship, something I desire for our church is this. I desire that our church is a place where we pursue friendship with one another. I desire that for our church. I think it, it, it's hard to be a good friend, and it's hard to make friends. Especially the older you get. The older you get, for some reason, it's just harder to to make friends and sustain those relationships, right? Like, when you're a kid, it's easier. Like, do you like Pokemon? I like Pokemon. I guess we're with each other for the rest of life. Like, you're my best man now. <laughs> but as you get older, it's a little bit harder. But here's what's beautiful about Christian friendship. We don't have to let our friendships uh, lean on or be supported solely by some of these surface-level things, like what we have in common or not in common, what we like or dislike. Christian friendship can go much deeper. Look at this quote from a book called Chasing Contentment. He says this about friendship. Consider the pursuit of good friends at church. It's very good to have close friends, particularly from your fellowship. In fact, most of my closest friends are from our church family. But how do we pursue them? 
What is the basis for making friends? How are our friendships sustained? Many people think of friendship as relationships in which people have a lot in common. And some people will leave a church saying, I can't find people I have a lot in common with. This is a staggering and revealing statement. It's dangerously close to saying there are no Christians here or I'm not a Christian. Or I don't value my identity as a Christian enough to consider it a basis for relationships. Our identity as Christians provides our chief common feature and basis for friendship with other believers. Church, what this author is getting at is that Christ has done such a powerful work that even those of us in here that are opposites could be, have deep, good friendships. That's how beautiful the gospel is. Jesus' power and how it works in this world through what he's done and his cross and resurrection makes it so that enemies can become friends. And so, church, if, if God really moves in friendship, I think that in this room, we should be very good at friendship. Or, at least, very good at working on friendships. Because friendships take time. And so, church, let's, let's be a church that begins to open up ourselves to one another. Let's pursue one another. Let's make time for one another. Let's be patient in how long it takes to form a good friendship with one another. Let's be honest with one another about the deeper parts of our heart. Let's be generous listeners to one another. Let's befriend people we wouldn't normally befriend. Let church, let us become good friends with one another because I truly believe that God takes an ordinary, everyday thing like friendship and he moves in it. He does this powerful work of love through friendship that does all sorts of good things. God moves in friendship. In fact, it's so clear to me that God moves in friendship because Jesus, when he came to earth and he made these bunch of guys his disciple, bunch of people his disciples, he said to them before he left, hey, I'm not, I haven't made you servants. I've made you friends. Jesus, God in the flesh, cares about friendship. And he was in the friendship-making business because God moves in friendship, Okay. Church, may we move, move in friendship ourselves, or may we pursue friendship ourselves so we could see God move in it. All right? The second way that I think we see God moving in these chapters, in these stories that we just went through, is that God moves in laments. God moves in laments. Uh, I want to read the heading uh, to the Psalm 52. Uh, it says this, To the choir master, a maskil of David, when Doeg, the Edomite, came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Now, something I learned recently is that these headings in the Psalms, they are part of the earliest manuscripts we have of the book of Psalms. So that means that these headings are part of God's word. They're not just there. Someone didn't put those headings there uh, later after the fact, like a lot of the headings in our Bible. But these headings in the book of Psalms are there from the earliest manuscripts we have. So that means that Psalm 52 was written by David when he was thinking about what Doeg just did and all the evil that he had done. And he writes this psalm about this brutal thing that Doeg did, and it made it into the songbook, the prayer book of God's people. Let me read the first seven verses of Psalm 52. Why do you boast of evil, almighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. 
You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. Selah. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch you and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not take not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. This is in the Bible. Doeg does this evil thing. David writes a song about it that's essentially a diss track to Doeg, where he's just insulting Doeg. There's, surely there's beautiful things about what God does and how God works in that, but it's mostly just going, look at the evil that Doeg has done. Doeg, your evil is so bad, people are going to laugh at you about it. This is in the Bible. And if you read the Bible, and the Psalms in particular, for any length of time, you're going to find there are a lot of Psalms like this. And they are categorized as laments. For God's people, they often took the pain that they were, see that they were having in this world, the confusion they were feeling, or seeing a way someone had hurt them, or even the confusion they had with God himself, and they would put it to, on words to a paper, and it would become a prayer or a song that the people of God sang together and have sung together for millennia now. And they're called laments. Just people bringing the rawness of their heart to God. And I think... By looking at this lament of this evil thing that Doeg did and seeing some of the moments where David is lamenting Saul and Doeg in this story, I think it's there because God moves in lament. God moves in lament. Laments are in our Bible because I think God wants us to be honest about this world to him. He wants us to be honest about our experience with this world to him. Because when we lament well, we will see God move in the midst of lamenting. When we lament well, uh, we will allow ourselves to feel things that often help heal our hearts. When we lament well, we will remember that God will take care of all injustice one day. When we will, will lament well, we process the confusing evil of this world with the guiding hand of the Spirit there to help us understand it better. And it seems to me that all we have to do to lament well is bring the rawness of our heart to God in a real and honest and true way. And the Psalms encourage us as the people of God to lament. God is the sort of God, he's kind of like a dad. He's like the sort of dad that says, hey, come weep in my arms and let's see if that helps. God moves in lament. Church, may we not have so superficial of a relationship with God that we never lament to him. It's all through the Bible. Church, may we not care so much about what we look like on the outside to others that we never lament to God about the pains that we're experiencing in this world. And, and, and may we never forget that God is always with us. So we don't have to do this thing where we're just complaining and grumbling inside the echo chamber of our heads all the time. We can actually just bring those complaints and grumblings to God himself. And he'll help us to remember his goodness. God moves in lament. Okay, the third thing in this story, the final thing we'll talk about, and what I see God doing in this passage is, I think that God is holding Saul up to us like a mirror. 
I think he's holding Saul up to us like a mirror. Uh, because he, here's the deal. I think it's a lot easier for any of us to become like Saul uh, a, a little bit easier than we realize, actually, to become just like Saul. Now, none of us are kings and have absolute authority and power, so maybe the things won't play out exactly the same way, and hopefully they don't. But I think they play out in smaller, similar, just as evil ways. Pastor John Crawford from Redemption Tempe, when he was talking about uh, this passage, he, he noted that Saul does three things, and it kind of ends up creating, turning him into a monster. He rejects, he rejects wisdom, he rejects relationships, and he rejects God himself. He rejects wisdom of everybody around him. Who There's so many people in the story who go like, let's not do that. Let's just not do that. He's like, no, we're going to do it. He rejects the relationship of his son and his daughter and probably his wife by what he says to them in the midst of them trying to give him wisdom. He, and then he rejects God himself when God overtakes him with the, with the spirit by causing him to prophesy. And Saul rejects God. And what we see happen to Saul is he becomes a monster in the midst of that. He's trying to kill his own son, try, killing a whole uh, town of priests. Church, when we reject wisdom, relationships, and God, we can become a monster. I'm thankful that many of us in the room, that's not how we do life. We're trying to, we're trying to chase after Jesus. We're trying to follow him. We're trying to obey God. So it might seem extreme to say, hey, we could become a monster if we reject these things. But I, I just want to say this. This is in the Bible for a reason. And, and it's there for God's people to see. And we would be foolish to not say, am I doing some of the same things that Saul is doing in smaller ways? And is it potentially going to turn me into a monster? Right? Some of us, the second wisdom doesn't tell us what we want to hear or give us what we want, we reject wisdom. The second our friends or relationships don't tell us what we want to hear, we reject those friendships. And very often, rejecting God is not far behind that. I've just watched it time and time again. God is holding in these chapters Saul up to us like a mirror. Church, look at the mirror and repent. Know that you have the arms of a heavenly father who loves you, who sent his son to the cross to die for your sins so you can run to the cross and you don't have to hide in your shame and react to your shame and live in your shame. And become the monster that Saul did. God wants to show that to us. Will we see it? And so what we've seen in this chapter today, in these chapters, is God moves. He moves in the ordinary, everyday stuff of life. Sometimes he does do these miraculous things. We see that all the time too. But it seems to me one of the ways he moves most often is through the ordinary, everyday stuff of life. He moves in friendships. He moves in our laments to him. And he moves in the telling of the story of an evil man from long ago. And so church, may we live into all the places God moves. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for putting yourself in our lives. Thank you that you're a God that doesn't just do miraculous things, but that you often move through very ordinary, unextraordinary things. God, my prayer for us 
is that we would be able to live into these things, realizing these, the, these things are often the place you move. And luckily, we have your spirit because of what Jesus did on the cross and in, in the resurrection. So we can live into these things. But God, we do fail at all of these things in all sorts of ways, whether we fail at being a good friend or making friends, or we fail at ever lamenting to you, or we fail at seeing ourselves as Saul. God, help us to gain victory in all of those areas as we fail. Help us to know that we can approach your feet and draw near to the throne of grace in the midst of all of that. God, we love you and we need you. Amen.